Hello and welcome to the Agile Podcast. My name is Paul Goddard. Jeff and I would just like to remind you that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes if you've got an iPhone and we'd love it if you can leave us a review as well. And you can also subscribe via SoundCloud. If you'd like to send us a question on Twitter, you can get hold of us at the Agile Pubcast. That's at the Agile Pubcast. So without any further ado, let's play the jingle. Evening, Paul. Hello, Jeff. It is a, an evening. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like a summer evening. It's very wet in Morocco. It's very drab, actually. Very British. Very British. We're in a very British-sounding pub, though, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Bag o nails. <laughs> Bag o nails. Bag o nails. You can't, you can't, yeah, you can't really say it with a posh accent. It's very cockney. It's, it's Irish, Irish, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I suppose, yeah. Bag o nails. Near, near Her Majesty's residence. Yeah, near the palace. Buckingham Palace Road. God bless her. Uh, yeah, and so we're, we happen to be in town on the same day, and thought we'd catch up for a quick, quick pint and a quick chat. Cheers. Cheers. Drinking something different today. Me? Yeah. I'm drinking copper. It's not copperberg at all, is it? It's um, Recorderlig, which is Swedish cider. This is premium passion fruit cider, which is very desserty, <laughs> very sweet. It looks, it's, it's very, it looks like lemonade when you pour it out of the glass. It's pear, pear and passion fruit. Oh, is it pear and passion fruit? Is it? It's very. Uh, it's almost like lemonade. The, color, the, the, the kind of colour of lemonade. It's very nice. I'm drinking Noble, a craft beer. I think it's green, one of Green King's own, and. Uh, it's alright. Right. Fruity. Quite light, I wouldn't say. Yeah. Not going to be If somebody told me it was a shandy, you'd have, I'd you'd, believe them. Yeah, okay. Quite weak. But well, I guess if it had been a nice warm day, it would be quite a refreshing point. Mm. But it's nice. It's alright, it'll do. Anyway, so. So, yeah, you were already here. You've been, in, you've been in town all day, haven't you? I was, yeah. I did the first day of a CSM class today for a small company, which was good. Um, yeah, good conversations, good interesting um, debates, mainly around... It's interesting how people get a poor view or a, a sceptical view based on previous experience. Hmm. So this team, this team's looking to try and reset, looking to try and draw a line down under what's happened before. They've had some bad experiences with some some particular individuals, I think, that didn't give Scrum a good name, and now they're trying to reset and start again. Mm. But it's good, because they had the whole team there, the whole team, okay, developers, QA, you know, DevOps, the whole lot. The business, with my fingers doing No, the that. business weren't there, no. the business weren't there. So not, not the whole, whole team. And there's a few gaps on the whole product ownership side of things, which is interesting to talk about as a there's a bit of a disconnect with what they call product managers okay. and I call product owners. Mm. So there's a bit of a, a gap. Mm. What about you? What brings you? Cool. Down? No, I, I, I've driven into London uh, for my public CSM. And that's a phrase. Just to, just to stop you there, Jeff. That I don't often hear about people driving into London. No, it was always something that I was very wary of. I was used to 
just think, my God, what? I must be mad driving into London. Well, I used to do that when I was a student, yeah. but because I couldn't afford a train ticket. But what, yeah. So what, why are you driving in rather than catching a it's train? Train surely easy. Um, well, it is, but you're quite restricted. In so you've way? got set times. Yes. Uh, it's quite expensive. You're not guaranteed a seat. And if I've been standing up all day, the last thing I want to be doing is standing up on a train on the way home. Very true. Three hours. Um, and often when it gets to the summer, it's uncomfortably hot as well. So, no, I've been driving into London quite a few times in the last year and it's been surprisingly easy. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, just I've got a nice car park that I, uh, I park in, which is relatively mm. cheap, easy to get to, quite central. Um, and then I can be a lot more flexible when I when I come home. Uh, That's it, weekends. yeah. The only thing I don't like about the trains is usually to get a good deal, you have to book a long way in advance mm. and you have to pick a train. Well, it's not very agile, is it? No, exactly. So you have to literally put your name on a ticket for a certain train at a certain time. And there's a huge amount of stress from me getting, if I picked a train at quarter to six yeah. and I finish training at five, mm -hmm. I've got to gam gamble getting across London. Yeah. Do I get a cab? Do I walk? Do I walk and cab? Do I cab and tube? And no, walk? It's not cheap. No. So which which is the best way? And there's no. The interesting thing, obviously, about London is sometimes it's a lot quicker to walk than it is to tube. Yeah. Because the tube stations are closer over land than they are underground. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. There's certain shortcuts, isn't there? Mm. Knowing where they are. But it's a bit of a gamble, and like not a very agile one because you can't. No, that's always a frustration for me, and, and a source of stress. Like you say, I, if you miss that train, then you've you've spent a lot of money, and you have to spend even more to buy a, a, a ticket there and then. So now I, I find it's, and I've got this this app that I was introduced to a while ago called Waze, which are, it, most most of our listeners are probably familiar with it because it's probably more tech Waze, than Waze, W A Z E. Yeah. Um, it's basically like Google Maps but with crowdsourcing so it's constantly updated and it's, it's pulling information from, from the users and uh, you can update so if there's, a, if there's a traffic camera or a speed camera on the road or something another Waze user would have told us about it and the, the app will tell me so it instantly updates yeah and with traffic and you know, things like that and it will plot new routes for you and it's been I just thought it would be another like Google Maps type thing, but actually I've been quite impressed with it. It's, it's saved me quite a bit of time, taking me. I feel a little bit like a London cabbie. Some of the routes that I've been, it's been taking me down. To be honest. Oh really? Um, yeah, but it's, I, I've been quite impressed. So that, that, again, I feel, I feel that's a slightly more agile way of doing it because you can't predict the routes. Uh, you can't predict the traffic, and I just don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of even main roads and motorways, let alone the little roads in uh, and around London. So. Having that kind of app just allows me to be a little bit more responsive. That visibility, that transparency of what's happening elsewhere. I do in my courses quite often reference, look for a metaphor to explain release planning or something like that. Oh, yeah. In terms of, it is a bit like a sat-nav system. Mm. At the start of your project, you know the least about your journey. Mm -hmm. But it will give you, a good sat-nav system will give you a, 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 some kind of estimate. Yeah. But you know full well it's going to be wrong because mm. you don't know what's going to happen along the way. Mm. And I would never, for instance, call my wife and say, I will be home at this time. Mm. But I say it's roughly around 6.30 or whatever. So there's some 
leeway that you know things are going to change. Yeah. What I found with this app, because it's pulling in information from so many places, and it, this, like you said, the sat nav. If I use the sat nav in my car, I would know it would be wrong. Partly because the map in my car is out of date, <laughs> and partly it's not very responsive. So it's just got the roads, and that's it. It won't change. Um, so it uses no live traffic data. Well, I think there. it's got some, but but not a lot. And I guess it gets it from a certain place. So I don't use that anymore. Um, and it, I can. What I found is when using this app, the estimate of the arrival time has been pretty pretty good. Really? So I remember telling you when I'm likely to be here, and I was there within two or three minutes of that. Estimate. How far out was that estimate? When? Did you, how at the far into at the start of the yeah, journey? The start of the journey, I was about three minutes out. That's incredible. Oh yeah, it's quite impressive. But and it, it changed for, routes a few times. But for roadworks, roadworks are semi-permanent, aren't they? So it can know where they are. But even, yeah, so that's unlikely to change. But an accident, mm. you don't know how long an accident will be blocking any particular road. So that's a bit more... I don't, no. But it, 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 can, it can see pretty quickly. If it knows where it's likely to go, it can see something as it starts yeah. and divert you before you get clogged up in it. Yeah. Obviously, it's not, it's not going to be perfect, but it's, it's a hell of a lot more agile. Google Maps doesn't do anything like that already. Well, I think it does, but it just. I, so I've been using Google Maps for a while instead of my car's sat now, because my car's quite old. Um, but this, since I've started using this, it's been better. significantly better. Um, and yeah, like I said, so I can I could send you my ETA through the app, which you know I'm, this won't be very friendly friendly to call you a, a dependency, but effectively <laughs> when we were meeting up for dinner, you, know, you you had you needed to know when I was going to be there, and I could give you that estimate, but you could have that transparency of my progress along the way. So if I was going to be held up, you would know, you could see my progress and think, well, I'm going to eat without Jeff. Yeah. I just thought there was a little bit of an overlap there. That metaphor is was a pretty good one. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. It's better than. Uh, could it could it get even better again? What what other features would you add to it? Hmm. What would I add to it? It's a difficult one from a, a legal perspective, I think, because I think when it gives you an option, we found a new route. Would you like us to take it? Mm. Would you like to take it? When my car's sit sat nav used to it, it just said, we found a new route, do you want to accept it? And I always found myself conflicted, thinking, well, do I gamble? Do I trust the computer? <laughs> yeah. Whereas this, this one just does it for me. I don't get a choice, it just does it. But if you could see, well, I'm going to take you down this route, I'm going to take you down this route, you might be tempted to override it when you shouldn't. And you spend too long thinking about it and not paying enough attention to the road. Yeah. <laughs> So any, any more features that it adds? Um, there's a bit of gamification in there. Right. So if um, if you add information, so if the map has changed or you know, the locate. So I, I took I went to a cricket club the other day, um, and it took me to the wrong part of the field, so you couldn't actually get in. The actual entrance was the other side, so yeah. it wasn't too much hassle. But I could go around, and then I could edit the map. So this is the entrance. You could take a picture of the entrance so the new users could see what, what you were looking oh, right, for. Okay, yeah. And you got points. I think I got 16 points for editing the map, and you could oh, add, right. the, add the information about you know phone number and what have you. And the more points you get, the more cool avatars you could have as your right, okay. thing like that. 
So there's a bit of a gamification in there. A lot of agile teams that I've seen make use of things like gamification from a motivation point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking about motivation, I, just when you mentioned about the uh, the sat nav estimate and yeah. how it's always wrong, um, I was on a, on a speed awareness course a while ago <laughs> <coughs> because I. Naughty uh, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I was caught doing slightly faster than I should have been. Come on, Lona, what, were you, what speed were you doing in what zone? I was doing 80 miles an hour on the motorway. On a 70. Which I thought was quite harsh, and to be fair, everybody in the, in the room couldn't believe that I was <laughs> I was the only person there who was caught speeding on the motorway. Everybody else was generally doing 14 or 30 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, not to excuse my... I was, I was breaking the law and I was duly punished. But the one thing that came up on that course was they talked about what, why... Why do people speed? The person who's running the course said, Why do people speed? And they came up with lots of reasons. You know, you're late, um, you're not paying attention, whatever. But quite a lot of people said, To beat the sat nav. <laughs> so if your sat nav really? says you're going to be home by 5.30, a, a lot of people want to beat the sat nav. Which I take as a little bit of an intrinsic motivation thing. People want to, want to do well, they want, they, they want to win, don't they? Um, and a lot of the good teams that I've seen will want to beat their commitments, they'll want to beat their plans, they will want to improve, they want to do well, yeah. outdo themselves, if you like, their own targets. Just going at the risk of meandering, which is what we do well on this thing anyway, um, I did the ballpoint game today, mm-hmm. and I've been toying with the idea, and this is something I know that you've done in the past as well, about... So how I generally run the ballpoint game now, there's, I do. I always try and do eight sprints. Okay. So if you don't, if you don't know what the ball game is, please Google it. But this is a game invented by Boris Glogger a long time ago. A lot of scrum trainers use it as a way to demonstrate iterative system design, really, through a simple ball ball game mechanism where with set rules that you've got to create. The team has to create. Um, a system to produce balls and try and maximise ball points for every ball they produce. I can't miss it. I haven't played it for maybe years. So I, I still do it quite a lot, and it's always interesting because I teams general make some fairly mediocre improvements, mm. and they might go from ten to thirty balls over four, four sprints, two minute sprints, four sprints, and then I stop them halfway through. I'll stop them and say, "Look, this is this is bad because I know." That teams can do a hundred. Okay. So we had that that point today. Halfway through, I said, to, and and today, most of them just laughed at me. <laughs> they laughed in my face and said, "You're a joker." And one of them actually said, "What are you, a manager or a scrum master?" Okay. Right. So it's an interesting point that around this intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation. So were you challenging them to make a hundred? I was. I was trying to demonstrate to reflect that they can be better. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, as soon as you introduce a, a number, it becomes a target. Mm. And that's and they got to their seventh sprint. And they'd heat they'd just done something like seventy balls. So they were improving. They were making bigger improvements yeah. in shorter space of time. So it was having that kind of benefit. But when it got it was the case when they get to the eighth sprint, what and I asked them what do you estimate now? A hundred. Mm-hmm. They've got no other data to suggest that they can do 100. They go for broke, and what do they do? They always perform lower than their previous sprint because they're trying too hard and the quality drops. So it's that interesting thing that, yes, I think teams do, it does motivate people to have a target, to have something to aim at, if they've selected it themselves. Mm -hmm. 
maybe the, dis the distance, the differences here, I didn't, that I, sele I selected, but I gave them that data, I presented mm. that data to them. But the, the story that I always tell from, from our history is, is BT, in terms of we had a new studio that came in from the States and challenged us to say, your two-year projects, you've got to deliver something in 90 days. That was his opening statement. And I don't think he did that as a, as a target. I think he did that as, a, as something to, to force people to think differently about it, to, to break people out of a habit, to challenge people to, to, to run things differently. And I think most teams actually failed that. They couldn't do that. But it started that kind of wheel turning mm. in a slightly different direction. I think belief's a powerful part of that. I'm not talking blind faith. I'm talking about you know, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're probably right. That kind of thing. And the teams that genuinely believe that 100 is possible have more chance of achieving 100 than the teams that think you're a joker and you're, yeah. you're lying. Um, and the teams that thought, yeah, okay, maybe 90 days is possible. If somebody else can do it, then why can't we? Yeah. Are more likely to achieve it. Mm. Belief is a powerful thing. Belief in yourself, belief in others is a powerful thing. Um, people often get amazed. I'm, I'm amazed by how amazed people are about how I can remember names. Mm. And they think it's witchcraft or something. <laughs> and they said, well, you must have a trick. I said, well, I don't really have a trick. But part of it is, I, ch I challenge myself to think, well, some people can remember people's names. So if they can do it, why can't I? Um, and there must be you know, practice. So that belief that I could do it, I used to label myself as, I haven't got a good memory. Yeah. And that can be a self-fulfilling label. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we can't. Do this. And it's um, one of the things I talked about today quite a lot is, is trying to be positive. If you, if you can... If you could be nothing else as a scrum master, just try and be positive. Yeah. This, uh, this idea that positive energy is contagious. And uh, another guy said, this is a, 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 a related point, we were talking about scrum master traits and scrum master skills. <coughs> and he said to me, would you agree that a scrum master has to be realistic? And I kind of, my instinct was, well yes, but then I stopped to myself and thought, well actually, do I want to be too realistic all the time. Constrained by the current paradigm. Yes, exactly. And I think there's an air of to be some of the questions I remember trying to ask as a scrum master was actually if this was if you just to extend your imagination, if you had the complete power to do whatever if you had a magic wand, how would you do this? To mm. try and extend people's way of thinking before constraining it. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting it sounds like a positive thing to try to be realistic. Mm. But part of me thought that actually there's an element of your role that's got to be ambitious beyond realistic. One of the words I really, really hated was pragmatic. Yes, we talked. Yeah, right. I hated that. Because even though like I am, you're, I am in many ways. It doesn't sound like a bad thing to be. No, because you, you don't want to be. You don't want to be an extremist. But if, you, if you're pragmatic, I think you just settle too quickly. You don't challenge your constraints enough. You don't challenge your assumptions enough. You don't push too hard and try things. Um, and you're not resolute enough either. You give in too easily. You compromise too quickly. Um, so yeah, pragma pragmatism is a good thing. But I found it to be one of the, the biggest weaknesses of Agile. I think it depends on how the... the, the the level of change that's required. If you're tweaking something, I think you probably could be pragmatic about it. But if you're trying to 
break people out of a, a mode, a way of thinking, yeah. then you do need to stretch yourself and you stretch other people beyond their current boundary. Yeah. And that's an interesting, I think as a scrum master you need to be able to know where and when is the best best place to do that. Oh yeah. Because yeah. 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 there will be times when you do have to be pragmatic yeah. around deadlines or around risk. Mm -hmm. But there's other times where you want to be creative and innovative that you want to, you don't want to be pragmatic, you want to mm. be fictitious. Yeah. You want to stretch. Drastic. Yeah. I was working at a company recently where they just had far too many pieces of work going on at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, the pragmatic thing to do would have been very sensible. It would have been a compromise. It would have been safe. But actually, what they needed to do was stop 80% of the projects they were working on, maybe even 90% of the projects yeah. they were working on. That's not pragmatic. No. That's extreme. That's brutal. But it was it's necessary because they didn't have enough capacity to do 10% of what they were doing just started too many things and they weren't able to finish anything and that's quite common I see quite a lot of places like that and pragmatism just leads to a slow death I think many many scrum masters fear their own job yes. security when in doing things like that though. Well, it's difficult to be radical if you, if you, if you need the security of the employment but there's, there's a it's very easy for us to say yeah but there's a fallacy there in that those people are going to be out of a job anyway. That company, true, that company yeah. I've got in mind, there are many of them, and many examples of them, but the one I've got in mind at the moment, that company won't be here in three years' time unless they make that drastic action. Um, and so those people will be out of a job anyway. There was a degree of scare, ta scare tactics at BT. Do you remember some of the, they used to call them all hands calls mm -hmm. and all hands roadshows events where basically this top senior, top brass as we mm. call them, would stand in front of the crowd and say, this company is fundamentally failing. At this rate, BT will not exist in five years' time. Mm -hmm. like that. The shock tactics, isn't it? Shock Nokia, therapy. Nokia's burning platform. Yeah. Go on. Well, that was, I think it was Nokia. Was, I, I suppose we're I standing, know this. We're standing on a burning platform. Oh, yeah, the guy, yeah. And we, yeah, we've got to jump. Yeah, it's not not going to be pleasant, but we can't stay here. We've got to jump into the sea with where the sharks are, but we can't stay here. Yeah. And there was a degree of that. There has to the sense. I think Jeff Sutherland used to talk about this a lot. This was years ago, but change comes from a sense of urgency, a belief that something's fundamentally wrong or something drastic needs to happen. And uh, it's a shame that people only realise the time to change is when it's drastic. too late. Too late. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it feels like you know, we're drowning. It's a denial thing. Also, it's a cumulative effect and, and a significance effect. So, when you know the whole metaphor of boiling a frog, you, know, you put you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will jump out. But if you put a frog in a bowl of water and heat it gently, it will stay there and die. Yeah. Um, where you know those those cumulative little bits and pieces. If you're in if you're in there. You don't notice all the little bits just adding up on each other. But as an outsider, you can think, this is mental, this is crazy. Mm. Um, but also then, I'm just one person in this company. What, what possible impact can I have? Everyone else is just going to carry on regardless, so why should I even bother? Yeah. yeah. And we'll call him Ian. But he would <laughs> <coughs> Classic thing that would, Ian would say. It also, a long discussion we had today in this um, day one of a CSM course, it was around 
and I hate to bring it up again, we've talked about this before, we've probably even put it on one of these podcasts before, but and it does have a bearing on that around this if you want change you need change agents. Yeah. And a lot of people still, even on this course with today, are saying they couldn't see the value of full-time scrum masters. So, mm-hmm. again, we've talked about this before, at the risk of repeating ourselves. For me, people still don't really understand that the scrum master role is not just about your team. It's always been your team and the organisation. Mm-hmm. And I think if you want drastic change, if you want to turn that proverbial oil tanker, it's the yeah. same BT, you need, a lot, you need a lot of people. You need a lot of dedicated people hands on deck yeah to make that that type of change happen and if you're spreading people that thin they'll purely focus on the process they won't have time to tackle the big stuff but it's a very tough sell it's a very um, it seems like an expensive commodity yeah. um, and I, I made the point again today I'm just trying to remember all the bits I said but the tempt- the, I think the instinct of a scrum master is sometimes to slow down rather than developers generally want to speed up. It's, it's someone who's prepared to say, hang on a minute, something's fundamentally wrong. And if you're a developer and a scrum master, here is a conflict of interest. Yeah. You've got to get a sprint done. Split personality. Yeah. And there's a big, you know, there's still a huge, I think the jury is still out. If you ask many different trainers, for their opinions on this. The Scrum Guide doesn't give you a, a definitive answer and I don't think anything does, but different trainers have different opinions, but I know that we've always agreed that the more full-time you make it, the, the best chance you have. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, if you've, got, if you've got an extra pair of hands that can write some code and you've got a pressing deadline, which would you choose, you know? It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? You can't get one, start one without the other. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. From satnav to intrinsic motivation to full-time scrum masters. Hmm. <clears throat> I did a blog post a while ago. It wasn't wasn't to do with scrum. It was to do with coaching. Just professional leadership coaching. Um, and I described my style as compassionately ruthless. Yeah. The coach should be compassionately ruthless. And I think that, that, that sort of that came to mind when you were talking there about you know, Scrum Master. Thinking about how pragmatism is a good thing, but sometimes you've got to be able to say the hard the hard message, the hard truth. You can't handle the truth. Good film. You've seen uh, that was on Sky Movies recently. Just talking about making reference to a few good men: Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, Debbie Moore, Kevin Bacon. Um, good film. Anyway, yeah. carry on. No, I, just know, I just know the quote. I <laughs> Great film. Yeah, yeah what was I saying? Compassionately ruthless. Yeah. So always bearing in mind where people are coming from and, and what what actually they is 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 tolerable you know you don't want to push anyone or anything past breaking point necessarily but being willing to to put it out there in in all its as we say in england warts and all mm. you know um not just hiding and covering up and playing it safe and being soft a good coach and a good scrum master will be prepared to say hold on a minute 
seriously, have a look in that mirror over there. Now look really closely in that mirror over there. And what do you see? And the good scrum masters are now, particularly maybe more in smaller companies, but they have a voice at the executive level. Um, and they have the ear, or they have the respect, probably is a better word, that just about anyone in the organisation understand, listens to, respects them from the, their integrity point of view in terms of they're looking at this, you know, mm -hmm. across, across the whole thing and, and trying to make some objective observations. I think that type of skill, I mean, it doesn't even have to be label or scrum master, but if you've just got people with that kind of coaching instinct to, to call out observations, yeah. powerful observations, what you want to call them. It takes a lot of courage. It takes less courage if the culture of the organisation is ready to accept it. In most cases it's not though, is it? No. But, and that's, that's a big part of uh, is trying to change that culture, or at least firstly operating within that culture, you know, surviving in that culture to begin with. Um, but yeah, and, and a lot of people's their instincts, especially people who take on that kind of servant leadership role, will have a massive people pleaser uh, mm. streak. They don't want to upset people, no. they don't want to tell them the hard truth, they just want to get along, they want to avoid conflict. When actually, part of the Scrum Master's job, part of a coach's job, part of a servant leader's job, is to actually encourage that. Conflict. Constructively and respectfully. Is that what ritual descent is all about? Um, that's a phrase you've, I've heard you mention before. Ritual descent is, a, is an actual technique that um, Dave Snowden and Cognitive Edge have written about. I wouldn't say it's that's what it's all about. I think there is an element of flipping, almost inverting things, you know, going from colour to, to black and white or something like that. Inverted colour scheme. Um, and rather than offering anything positive, just ripping an idea to shreds okay. and being ruthlessly ruthlessly cruel about an idea if you like almost in a so extreme it's comical kind of way you know uh, because we know that's that's what we have to do because of the process it's a little bit easier to take right there's a lot more to it and I actually quite like it but it can it can it's not for everybody right now you have to have a certain degree of safety and respect within the relationship for it to work or at least have the process explained sufficiently well so that there is no risk that it can be personal. Mm. But it, it's, a, it's a slightly risky technique, but it's one that can work really, really well. <coughs> a lot of the best, best, the better techniques that I've used and I know you use thrive on the sense of safety. If you, if you can, and, the, and I use the, 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 the term maturity a lot and think sometimes the two get mixed up, but there's got to be a level of respect and of, of safety between the part, those two parties or a scrum team, whatever it might be, that I'm not doing this with any sense of malice. I'm not no. trying to hurt you when I'm going about to say. Um, but That's why we talk about coaching being done with permission rather than being done to somebody. Mm. Whereas management is often done to somebody. Mm. Yeah. You did a... It's, it's not too dissimilar to... I know you, a few international conferences where you've been speaking at, and I... You did. Um, you did some thoughts. I'm not sure what, how I would describe it. Almost like brainstorming techniques, if you like, creativity games. Yeah. Um, and one of them where you, um, you gave P 
people, a lot of cartoon characters, mm -hmm. and said, right, imagine yourself as Homer Simpson. What would Homer Simpson do in this situation? What would yeah. uh, uh, Scooby-Doo do in this situation? Kind of, yeah. um, and then after all of that, you said, okay, and then think about Hannibal Lecter. What would, what would Hannibal Lecter do? That idea of being, taking the flip side of it, the extreme polar opposite, and thinking destructively about a situation. Mm is a similar kind of thing to Ritual Descent okay. in some ways. It's actually, permission how could I make this worse? Yeah. But Ritual Descent is about finding all the holes in the current proposal rather than actually trying to make a situation worse. It's right. a similar kind of thing, but in a different, different direction, if that picking, makes sense. Picking something apart. Hmm. Hmm. Our glasses are dry. Yeah. And uh, I believe it's your round. <laughs> well, this has been the bag of nails. Is that what I'm saying the right? Yeah. Bag of nails. I think you're supposed to see. Bag of nails. It's, it's got to be a bit piracy. Yeah, a bit piracy, I think. Yeah. Well, there we are. Yeah, well. Day two tomorrow, day one for you. Yes, meet some new people. Good to see you, mate. Yeah, good to see you again. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, everybody. Ta da.